Good morning. Welcome to Midland Free. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. We're delighted to have you this morning. If you're not from around these here parts, you're about to get a cultural experience. This is the Virginian, a horseman of the plains by Owen Wister. Chapter 12, Quality and Equality, a conversation between the Virginian and the schoolmarm, Molly. I'm not sure I'm the wife you want, she said with an attempt of airiness. He answered roughly, I'll be the judge of that. His roughness was a pleasure to her, yet it made her afraid for her woman's fortress was shaken by a force unknown to her before. All men are born equal, he remarked slowly. Yes, she answered with a combative flash. Do you tell the kids so? Of course, I teach them what I believe, he pondered. I used to have to learn about the Declaration of Independence. Equality is a great big bluff. It's easy called. I I didn't mean, wait, and I'll tell you what I mean. He made an imperious gesture with his hand. I know a man that mostly wins at cards. I know a man that mostly loses. He says it's his luck. All right, call it his luck. I know a man that works hard and he's getting rich. I know another that works hard and he's getting poor. He says it's his luck. All right. Called his luck. I look around and I see folks moving up or moving down, winners and losers everywhere. All luck, of course. But since folks can be born different in their luck, where's your equality? No, sir. Call failure luck or call it laziness. Wander around the words, prospect all you mind to, and you'll come out to the same old trail of inequality. He paused for a moment, looked at her. Some hold four aces, he went on. Some hold nothing, and some poor fella gets all the aces and no show to play them. But a man's got to prove himself to me before I believe in my equal. Molly sat gazing at him, silent. I know what you meant by saying you're not the kind of wife I want, but I am the kind that moves up, and you're going to be mine. He turned toward her, and that fortress within her began to shake. Chapter 13, The Game in the Nation, Act the First. The below reflections occurred to me before reaching Billings, Montana. There can be no doubt of this. All America is divided into two classes. The quality and the equality. It was through the Declaration of Independence that we Americans acknowledged the eternal inequality of man. For by it, we abolished the cut-and-dry aristocracy. We had seen little men artificially held up in high places and great men artificially held down in low places. And our own justice-loving hearts abhorred this violence to human nature. Therefore, we decreed that every man should thenceforth have equal liberty to find his own level. 
By this very decree, we acknowledged and gave freedom to true aristocracy, saying, let the best man win. Let the best man win. That's America's word, and that's true democracy. And true democracy is true aristocracy. The one and the two are the same thing. And if anybody cannot see, di- see this, so much the worse for his eyesight. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Is God an arbitrary dealer who takes satisfaction in watching one person win and the other lose? Today we're going to peek in on a little game of cards. And we're going to see one dealer and three players. Everyone is dealt a different set or a different set of cards, a different hand. And we'll see that no two hands are exactly the same, yet everyone is held accountable for how they play them. To illustrate this point, Jesus is going to tell us a story or a parable called the parable of the talents. Before we read that parable, I want to set it in context for you and give you the setting. Otherwise, we're just jumping into this very large um, discourse or teaching in the middle of a section, and you'll have no idea what's going on. So, let me paint a picture of where we're at in the timing of Jesus' life, in the context of what he's doing, and then we'll walk through it in a very simple way. So, the first thing I want to explain to you is this, is that this is happening uh, in, in a larger setting, in a bigger teaching, and that teaching is called the Olivet Discourse. Now, that sounds like a a big name, but basically it's a very simple name. And what it is, is it's a teaching that's named after its location. So, take a guess. The Olivet Discourse occurred where? Mount of Olives. Exactly right. Now, the Mount of Olives is a mountain not like Whistler, Pikes Peak, or Everest, but instead more like a mountain you might have around here. It is a slightly bigger hill, um, and I think I have some pictures of it here. This is a picture of the area, so you can see this is the hill country, the Judean hill country. And the Mount of Olives is basically, uh, next slide please, Uh, you will see it like this. It is a mount or a mound that basically separates the big city of Jerusalem from the suburb of Bethany. So the Mount of Olives lies in between there. And the reason that's significant is because of this, is uh, basically what's happening in Jesus' Passion Week is that he is at, during the day, he's teaching in Jerusalem. This is the last week of Jesus' life. And during the day, he's teaching, he's going to the temple, to the capital, to the big city, and he's teaching and teaching and teaching but it's stirring up strife among the religious leaders and the political authorities and people are getting upset. So it's not safe for him him to stay there at night. So what he does is at night, he leaves the city and goes out to the suburb and thus he passed through the Garden of Gethsemane over the uh, Mount of Olives and that's where today's story is taking place. 
is in transition, basically on his commute. Jesus was a commuter, so to speak. So back and forth from one place to the other, he gets up to the top of this hill and he's looking down on the city of Jerusalem. And that's where he's like, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, what are you doing? What is going to happen to you? What a mess. How I long to gather you under my wings. You know, and that's where he mourns and weeps over the city. And this is how things go. So let me show you um, sort of a picture um, walk through the last week of Jesus' life. Okay, so this is going to be on Saturday. So let me show you a picture of Saturday. What happens is I call it Soak Saturday, which is basically the day that Jesus is anointed for burial. Now, he's anointed by Mary, and they are in the house of whom? Does anyone remember? Whose house are they staying in? Lazarus. So that's interesting for you people who are students of the Bible, because Lazarus was the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. Now Jesus is being anointed for burial. So in other words, in the house of the resurrected, the Messiah is anointed for burial. Okay? Of interest. All right, so that's Saturday. Then you know what happens on Palm Sunday. The next day, Jesus goes into the city, and the crowds are like, Woohoo, he's here. Here's the Messiah. Here, crown him king. And then things began to change. And there is a Tuesday, which he's, he sees uh, the city. And then there is. Sorry, I skipped Monday. Let's go back to Monday. Good job on the slides, by the way. Monday, he's, he's cleaning out the city. He sees the temple, which is a great big mess. And then there is Tuesday, where he laments over the city of Jerusalem. This is where this teaching occurs, is on this day. And then there's Wednesday, where the um, leaders get together and plot against him. There is Thursday, where he celebrates uh, the Passover feast, which becomes known as the Lord's Supper. His last meal before Friday, in which he was um, crucified. And then Saturday is completely silent. And then Sunday, of course, is spectacular. And that's basically the, the week before Jesus does, obviously, his greatest work. The work of atonement, death, burial, and resurrection. In, in the midst of that week, on Tuesday, he tells this story. So out of all that craziness, out of everything that's going on, he stops and takes time and says, hey guys, there's one more really last important thing I need to be able to tell you about. And this is what it is. And basically what he gives them then is prophetic, a prophetic discourse or, or a look at what the future is going to be. What are the end times going to be like? His disciples were a bit concerned about this because they could see things escalating. And so they asked him this question in Matthew chapter 24 in verse 3. They asked him the question as he sat on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples came to him privately saying, and they said, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, chapters 24 through 25 are basically the answer to that question. What is it going to be like? What will the end times look like? Here is the answer. So as we move into this story now in Matthew chapter 25, what you'll see is that Jesus is going to begin with this statement. He's going to say in verse 29, For it, 
will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, if you're paying attention, immediately you ask yourself the question, what? <laughs> you know, what do you mean it? For it will be like a journey. The it here is the end times or the approaching season that Jesus is saying is about to come before his final return. And basically, through all these discourses, he's saying, hey, look, you guys need to get ready because the time is short. The hour is near. You know, the seasons are changing and the master is about to return. So in other words, get ready, be prepared, because Christ is coming back soon. Therefore, the natural question comes to us, well, what do we do in the meantime? And this is the answer. This parable tells you what do you do while you wait. How do you prepare and how do you get ready? Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. This is Jesus' teaching the last week of his life on what to do to wait until he returns. He says this in verse 14. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each according to his own ability. Then he went away. Now he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five servants. Here I made five, five talents. I made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master came to him and said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, he also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, uh, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, and reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter no seed, so I was afraid. And they went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scatter no seed? Well, all right then, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless fellow into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A warning and an encouragement. As you discuss this in your life groups this week, you'll probably see that there is more of one than the other. But I won't give that away to you yet. 
At this point, it's enough for you to know that there are basically three movements in this passage or in this story. And the movements are these. There is the trust, how the story starts. The servants are entrusted with something. There is the servant's response, how they respond with what they're entrusted. And then third and finally, there is the master's response to the servants. And basically what you'll see is that the theme throughout all of these movements is that we should work hard while the master is away. Work hard while the master is away. So let's take a look at the first, the trust. Verses 14 and 15, it says, you know, for it will be like a journey, uh, a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, as you know, my wife and I have uh, three young children. And in order for us to enjoy a quiet evening, that means we have to go out. Because that will certainly not happen in our house. And so, in order to go out, we invite babysitters in and we entrust our children to them. Now, let us be very clear. In that process, I think it's somewhat understood, we are entrusting our children to you. We're not giving you our kids. (laughs) We're loaning them to you for a few hours for you to take care of. And then we'll come back. And at the end of the night, we're going to ask for a report. How did our children do? How did you do? And as we walk in the door, it's going to be very clear to us how things went. You know, if toys are scattered everywhere, the dishes are a mess, and stuff is hanging from the ceiling, and the kids are bouncing off the walls, things didn't go so well. Or maybe you thought they went well, but we feel otherwise. But if we come home and we see that the counter is wiped down, and the dishes are rinsed, and the children are in bed, and the lights are down low, and you're sitting on the couch reading a book, we're thinking, hey, you did pretty well. This looks good. And what has happened there is that we have entrusted the babysitter with the thing that is very most precious to us. We've already said that we really believe in you because otherwise we wouldn't give you our children. And we've given you the opportunity then to manage it on your own. We left We will come back, we will call you to account, but it will become very clear what you did and how things went while we are away. That is known as a trust. So too, in this story, the master is saying, hey, I'm giving you some things to use for a while. They're mine, they're not yours to keep. I'm going to go away, and when I come back, I'll see how you did. And it will become very clear to me whether you managed these things well or whether you did not. So you need to understand, first and foremost, the first point is this stuff is not yours. So too in life. Ladies and gentlemen, we have money, we have time, we have talents, we have treasures. And a lot of times we come to the plate and we think, oh, this is my money that I'm giving to the church. Or this is my time, or these are my talents, or my day. And as soon as we start doing that, the master's like, what are you talking about? This is not yours. Those are not your children. You do not own them. They're mine. I'm the master. You are entrusted with them to use while I am away and use well. Why? For my benefit and that of my family. I didn't give you my kids so that you could use them. They're still my kids. You do what is best for them and my family. And when I come back to my house, I want to see it in good order. So too with the Savior. 
He's entrusted you with things, money, time, talent, treasures, resources, etc. But they're not yours. Not at all. They're yours to use for his benefit. And that's a whole different thing. So the question is not, how did my day go? (laughs) But how did I use this day for the Lord and his glory? How did I bring him credit through what he gave me? First point is it is not yours. Second of all, look, there are different amounts. Verse 15 says, to each according to his own ability. Now look, the same thing is true of babysitters. If we have a young, inexperienced babysitter who's kind of, you know, learning the ropes, we're not going to give her the same amount of responsibility that we're given to a couple of parents who have raised lots of children and they're coming in, tag-teaming it with a box full of tricks and ready to go, you know? Those are different stories. For the younger babysitter, we may have dinner laid out, we may have their beds made, their toothbrushes with toothpaste on them and the baths done and their pajamas sitting on the bed. And we're like, all you got to do is just get them from point A to point B. That's it. That's all we expect. But for the experienced babysitter, we may be like, yeah, cook dinner, whatever, you know, you got it, mom, dad, whoever, you're on, good luck, see you later, you know. Different expectations. So too with my children, you know, I've got a two-year-old and I've got an eight-year-old. My eight-year-old little boy, boy, he can put it away. You can put a steak and a potato and, you know, gravy and whatever else you want to lather on his plate and it's gone. My little girl, you know, I'm cutting up grapes and peas and maybe giving her a little yogurt and she's combing it through her hair and by the end of the day, she's done. It's a whole different situation. Now, if my son were to say to my daughter, hey, look, dad gave me a steak. He must love me more. I'd say, what? What are you talking about? Man, I love her just as much as I love you. Are you kidding? Have you seen her cute curly little hair? I want to kiss her all day long. Man, get your head on straight. What are you thinking? It's not about the amounts. It's about their abilities at that time. Don't get hung up on the amounts. But do you understand, ladies and gentlemen, so often in our lives we are just hung up on the amounts. We're stuck. That lady's more skinny. That guy's more smart. He's got more money. He's this, she's that, blah, 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 blah. And the Lord's like, come on, whap. Do you really think that I love them more than you? It's different amounts. Get over it. Don't get hung up on it. I love you just the same. Yeah, she's a little you know, girl with curly hair. I didn't give her a steak. So what? I love her like crazy. Don't get hung up on the amount. I love you just the same. Ladies and gentlemen, there's people sitting in the row from, with you that are different. And they got different amounts. Some folks got a big ranch. Some folks got nothing. Oh, well. Different amounts. Here's a little story you might find kind of cute. When I was in high school, uh, my dad... See, I'm trying to identify with this audience, right? My dad, he was uh, very scientifically minded. He was a physician really smart, and uh, could do a lot of cool stuff. So, needless to say, at the annual science fair, my brothers and sisters and I usually did pretty well. (laughs) You know? Dad was there to help. Now, we did the work, but he could think of really cool stuff. Now, I don't know how to fix an automobile or paint my house or anything else, but my dad can tell you how the microwave works, all right? 
So we come in with these really cool science experiments, and uh, what would happen is that, you know, generally they'd get a little ribbon on them or whatever, and, and at the end of the day, I was, I was coming around the corner, and I saw one of the teachers, the history teacher in my school, and there he was standing next to my project, which had a blue ribbon on it. There's a couple other kids gathered around. You know what he did? He leaned over to one of the other kids, and he goes, eh, that's because Dr. Lobdell does it all for him." They're really not that good. Hi, Mr. McClure. <laughs> or, whoops. Hi, so-and-so. <laughs> and um, he turned around and he was just like, <laughs> you know, because he'd just been bad-mouthing me right in front of these other kids, you know, completely unprofessional in every way. And he turned so red and I let it go and didn't, you know, tell on him or anything like that. And I was just like, okay. But that's how it is, right? When somebody has some advantage that you don't necessarily appreciate, the temptation is to cut them down in another way. And we do that sometimes. You know, we go after our brother's sister and say, well, you know, that's only because of this. Well, if they didn't inherit that or blah, 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 you know, I would do twice as well with that, you know? We just go after them. And that's not right. Look, I had an advantage. My dad was a scientist, whatever. Guess what? One of my friend's dad was a principal. He never got picked on. I'm like, what? He got away from initiation and hazing and everything else, and he just, you know, floated right by. No one ever bothered him. Different advantages, different folks. Now, I knew another guy who didn't have a dad. He was with his grandma and his mom. No advantage, right? Yeah, right. Let me tell you this, that guy knew how to talk to ladies. (laughs) Let me tell you, if you want to see one guy who always had a girl, it was him. Why? He had ladies all around him. It's all he knew. Here us blumbering idiots are trying to talk to girls like, and he's smooth as silk. No trouble whatsoever. We all had our own abilities, right? Different strokes for different folks. Don't get hung up on it. It's just the way it is. That's the way things go. So you look at this trust, and what you need to do is trust the dealer. He deals out the cards. He knows what he's doing. He gives you what you can handle. So don't worry about it. Don't get hung up on it. If you don't have more, it's because you're not supposed to. Stay where you're at and be good with that. The cards are dealt. We have different hands. Don't get hung up on the amounts. Just play. Just play the game. That's point two, the servant's response. So point one, there's a trust. Point two, there is a response. Now, verses 16 and 17 say it like this. You know, the master went away, and then he who had received the five talents at once went and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. Right away, I tried to emphasize and hope you notice the immediacy of of this response. This guy is basically like comes to the master, snaps to attention, says, yes sir, right away I will, and's out the door before it could hit him. He was on it. He was right away obedient. When I was in northeast Missouri, I did a funeral for a former Air Force member, and um, it was a long way away from Whiteman Air Force Base, and this guy was no president or anything else. And so they sent one 
uh, lonely bugler. Now, just one little kid. Um, he was basically a new recruit, and um, he was trying to describe it gracefully, but basically he was, he was a young man of low rank and no major significance. And he drove out there, and he got out of the truck, and I was a young minister at the time, and basically here's me and the funeral director and a few others out in some lonely hill in the middle of nowhere going to bury this veteran that nobody remembers. And I remember that young man, boy, he was standing at the edge of his uh, van just like, boom, like this. I'm like, okay. So I walk by him, and I'm orchestrating the service, and, I, and he's like, ask me a few questions. And I said, okay, this is how it's going to go. And he's like, yes, sir. Boom. And I was like, whoa, look at this dude. Holy smokes, you know. I had no idea what I was in for this morning, but that young man showed me something I hadn't seen in a long time. It was called respect. I mean, that boy was respectful. Uh, it's something you just don't see today. I don't know if you experience this or not, but you walk around the mall, drive around downtown, and the majority of youth, in my opinion, now I sound like the old guy, yeah, they got no respect. <laughs> I mean, it's just not. This kid was like, yes, sir. And I don't know if it was the cultural background he grew up in or whatever, but I'm telling you, there was respect there. And I saw that and I said, wow. There's a good attitude. That is the attitude I'm after. And as I look at this story, a lot of times we ask ourselves the question, wow, what, what's the big deal? Why is the master so mad? And what you see in the varying responses is an entirely different attitude. The first and second servant man, they respond to the master right away, full bore, 100%. He says, here's, here's your stuff, go. And they're like, yes, sir. And they are out the door. They're gone. The other guy's kind of like, whatever. Yeah. Old guy, what does he know? Whoa. Totally different response. Completely different attitudes. And thus, the master responds appropriately to what is at work in their hearts. The first one demonstrates respect and an attitude of reverence towards the master. The second, complete disrespect lackadaisical, I don't care, whatever. The first one takes what he has and he goes out and he trades them. Now, trading back then is just like trading today. It ain't easy. People aren't giving it away. They know the value of their stuff and if they're anything worth their salt, they've done their homework before they're going into it. Everybody's looking for a good deal. And so, in order for you to be effective in this sort of transaction, you got to know what you're looking for, how much it's worth, and your, your goods as well. So in other words, this guy had talked to the consultant, he'd done his research, he'd analyzed the market, he's projected the trends, he's gone home and studied, he's looked at example cases, and now he's ready to make his purchase or transaction. He didn't willy-nilly go to the casino, drop it in a slot machine, and pull the lever. He worked hard. He did his homework, and he came to the table ready. He traded with them and made five more. Moreover, not only that, but it also required a bit of faith, because even after you've done your homework, if you're in the business world, you know sometimes it still feels like you're pulling down on the lever. 
Because there's uncertainty, there's market unpredictability, there's numerous factors that don't make it into the function. And in the end, even though you've done your very best, you're not sure. And you plant that seed and you pray for rain and you hope that God will make it grow. And that's the way it goes. So this guy is just totally different than any of the others. First of all, he has a good attitude. Second of all, he does his homework. And third of all, he has faith. You know, good attitude, works hard, has faith. That's the type of guy I want working for me, right? He's the one you want to hire. On my soccer team, I've told my boys I want three things. I want ESB. I want ears, spirit, body. I want listening ears. I want a teachable spirit. And I want a hard-working body. And if you give me that, I think our team can do pretty well. But if any of those things you don't give me, you're going to get to step off the field for a little while. And when you're ready, you can come back. Because on this team, the way we're going to play is with listening ears, teachable spirits, and hard-working bodies. And I look at this guy and I say, yeah, that's him. Good attitude, hard-working, full of faith. Here we go. And he does well. That's the way it works. Verse 18, however, there's an entirely different servant. There's one who's the complete opposite. He is a foil and a contrast to these first two. It says, he, but, there's your contrast, but he, verse 18, who had received the one talent, now obviously the master knew his character, went and dug in the ground and hid the master's money. Where's the at once? Where's the trade? Where's the respect? Where's the effort? It's all missing. This guy looked for the easiest out he could find and just put it in the backyard and it was done. And perhaps, maybe, the master won't return and then he's the only guy who knows where it is and he can go get it. If he went to the bank and said, here's this guy's money, then the bankers know who it belongs to. Instead, he just went out and buried it himself and did nothing with it. Minimal effort, minimal vision, no homework, no monitoring, no change. He can't see the bigger picture. He has small expectations and a very small view of the master. It's the complete opposite of the first two. And I just want to throw in a little you know, prop for theology here. Look, the way you think of the master influences how you behave. In other words, what you think of God determines how you will serve him. Your theology influences your practice. And that becomes very clear here as the master responds to him and he's like, Oh, really? <laughs> you thought I was like that, did you? You thought of me this way. Your thinking is completely wrong. You're way off. And because of your poor thinking, now you have poor results and poor behavior. If you thought I was that way, you should have done this. Man, oh man, have you got it wrong. The master's response. Let me describe the master's response to you in a little bit different way. This is um, something that happens to me frequently almost on a daily basis. I'll come home from work. And my children, at this point, they're not running from me. They're still running to me. I'm thankful for that. I come in the door and they're like, dad, 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 you know, and I get it from three different ends and I can't process it all and I'm tripping over myself trying to get in the door. And then I hear from one, hey, look what I did. And they pull out their picture, you know, and then another, come to my room, come see what I did. And then Eden, our two-year-old, you know, 
I'm like, oh, wow. And what do I do? Well, I go around to each one. You know, I take off my shoes and set down my bag. And one shows me his tower. And he says, look, I had all these blocks and I built this. And another shows me his drawing and says, look, mom printed this off and I colored it. And then my little girl holds up her picture and there's scribbles all over it. And I have no idea what it is. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. It's beautiful. And she holds it up and she's like, ah, you know. And to each and every one of them, according to their abilities, I go around and pat them on the back. And they enter into the joy of my reward. And we both experience the satisfaction of their job well done. Now on occasion, just to be honest, sometimes one or two of my older children will say, well, mine is better, look at this. You know? Or they'll say something like, you know, oh man, hers is just scribbles. And I'm looking at them and I'm saying, guys, I don't really care. She can scribble all over the place and I'll still think it's the best drawing in the entire world. Because she's my daughter. I love her. She's awesome. And I don't expect her to draw the same way you do. And I don't expect you to draw the same way your older brother does. Yet, I love you all the same, and I'll jump up and down every day you show me something because I think you're great. I don't really care about your stuff. I'm rooting for you. Well, so too with God the Father. You need to understand that he has entrusted you with some things. He's away for a little bit. He's coming back, and when he does, he's going to be excited to see what you've done. And it's really not about you know, the next person or this person or that person, but instead, what did you do with what he gave you? How'd you do? Now, listen, with my children, it's kind of interesting because I'm, I'm intentional about it. Like, I give them a coloring crayon and I give them paper. But I don't color it for them. I don't build the tower for them. Why? Because that'd be no fun. I'm not interested in what I can do. I want to see what they can do. So I give them the basic elements and I say, now go after it. And I don't tell them exactly what they have to make. And I don't tell them exactly how they have to color. But I'm going to be excited to see them do it. I'm giving them the opportunity to find joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in their calling. To take the basic elements that I've implanted into their lives, bring them together and use them for something. Now I haven't said exactly what that has to be, but I just said do your best with it. So too with God and us. Look, he's given you certain things. He's given the opportunity to use them. And he's not telling you exactly what to do, but he's saying, hey, I want you to color something. I want you to build something. I want you to do something so that when I come back, I find it and I can give you the reward and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment of seeing your work. This is your opportunity to serve the master. And the question then becomes, well, how are we going to respond? Like the first and second servant or like the third? We're going to come to this and say, oh, no thanks. I'm really not interested and just put it under the table. We're going to pick it up and start scribbling away to the best of our abilities. And look, I know I'm talking in analogies and other terms here, but let me give you a concrete example. You're a mom with five kids and you've got all kinds of stuff going on throughout the day. And your husband's at work and he's doing his thing and you're busy too. And he comes home and the house is a mess and dinner is burnt and everything's a mess. Now, I'm not sure what your husband's response is going to be. But I can tell you what God's is. He's like, yes, that's awesome. Good job. 
You're like, what? It's just scribbles. It's a big mess. But yeah, that's the best you could do that day. Scribbles are okay. I'm proud of you for that. Because, yeah, you had a lot going on, and I understand, and I'm not looking for a Mona Lisa. I'm just happy with what you put on paper. Don't worry if it's a little scribbly. It's okay. Because you're my daughter, and I love you. I'm your father. Come on. Here we are. What is your view of God? How does he look to you? Is he big, mean, and scary? You need to run and hide? Or is he loving, good, and kind? If you have the right theology, if you have the right view of God, it's going to influence your actions and you will respond. You will understand that the things that are entrusted to you are not yours to keep and hoard, but they're his to share and multiply. That his response is not going to be one of, uh, you know, judgment, but instead encouragement. I'm not going to come home to my kids and say, oh man, that, ugh, you could have done so much better on that. Look, you went outside the lines right there. That was a mistake. Get back in. Do better tomorrow. No way. I'm going to come home and say, good job, kiddo. You worked the best you could. I'm so proud of you. That's our God. He's given you things. He's entrusted you. He wants to bless you and see you use it. There is a trust. There are servants. And there's a response. And the question for us today is, what will our response be? Now, when we bring it back to the story of the cowboy, um, I just, I'm only partway through the book. I haven't read the end. I don't know what's going to happen. But you know what I think I do, actually? It's a western, right? The cowboy's going to get the girl. Bad guy's going to get shot. And they're going to ride off into the sunset. I've got a pretty good feeling that's the way things are going to go. And you know what? I think that's what's kind of cool about westerns. Because in some small way, they represent the story of mankind. Like the Virginian, we haven't read the end yet. But here in Matthew 24 through 25, we have some pretty good hints of what it's going to be. We may feel ourselves at times like the lonely cowboy who's out riding the open plain. But we have to remember, this land ain't ours. This ranch ain't ours. In fact, it belongs to the master. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Our job is just to watch the ranch and not worry about how he divides things up. Take care of the portion he's given us and be sure when he comes back, he'll settle up. There will be a reckoning. And those who have done well, will mosey on up to his table and drink to their reward. And those who haven't, well, he'll put them out of business for good. As for me, I suppose I better get along because he could be coming back any time. For to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. 
But from those who do nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Father, you're a good and gracious God. And you do own the cattle on a thousand hills. You're the king, owner, and master of the ranch. We are but your servants in your hands. But Lord, even in that, we pray that you would find us faithful to use your resources well for your honor and glory. Trusting that you're a good and gracious God who knows what we can handle, gives us what we deserve, and takes joy in seeing what we can do. Lord, may we do our very best, work really hard with the stuff you've given out of love, joy, and respect for you. We pray all these things to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.